0: Today as we uh, take a break a bit, we are in between sermon series. We have just finished, for those of you visiting with us, we have just finished a study through First and Second Thessalonians, uh, and in about two weeks we are going to begin a study through the Old Testament book of Numbers. Now we're taking a break for a couple weeks uh, to catch our breath and so your pastor can get his bearings in Numbers, uh, and, uh, and so we're looking today at 2 Timothy chapter 3 a familiar passage. Our text today is uh, going to be verses 12 through 17. You may notice that it's hard to know where to start in Timothy because almost every thought begins with a conjunction. And so you back up to get more context and you have to back up to get more context. I'm gonna start reading at verse 10. It begins with a however, that's okay. Go back and read the rest later if you want to. We're jumping in mid-sentence or mid-thought really. But really, our study today is going to be verses 12 through 17, which also begins with an indeed. Uh, So again, it's hard to know where to start. 12 to 17 is what we're in today. I'm going to read verses 10 to 17 for a bit more context. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord together. Uh, Let's seek His blessing on our study. Gracious Lord and God, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word has been breathed out uh, by You, by Your Holy Spirit, carrying along holy men of old, as You directed them, and Your Word is profitable. We pray, Father, that as we come to Your Word, You would teach us and reprove us. You would correct us and train us in righteousness. You would cause us, through Your Word, to see the Lord Jesus Christ, and through faith in His name, to have life. We pray in His name. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3, today beginning to read in verse 10. You, however have followed my teaching my conduct my aim in life my faith my patience my love my steadfastness my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra which persecutions i endured yet from them all the lord rescued me now our passage beginning in verse 12 indeed All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. You may uh, remember that uh, in the closing chapters of the book of Daniel, uh, God's prophet there receives a vision of things to come. It's, uh, it's an apocalyptic message, a cryptic message in some ways about the day of the Lord. He receives a vision of angelic warfare and coming destruction. He receives a vision of deliverance and of an eventual resurrection when many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. And then, at the end of that vision, he also receives a personal warning. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, the Lord says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. It's one of the more perplexing aspects of David's prophecy, the idea that God has a word for his people, but they're not supposed to hear it Yet There are some passages of Scripture that are like that. Remember our studies through Thessalonians. You may remember that there were some things that we simply couldn't answer. There are some things in the Bible, mysteries that remain undiscovered. There are truths that stay under lock and key, waiting to be fulfilled. And until the time that they are fulfilled, really all that we can know about them is that we don't know all that we would like to. So Jesus says that concerning that day and hour, no one knows. So Paul says that he had visions in the heavenly realms that he was not allowed to share with others. And so Peter says that there are some things in Paul's writings, he says, that are hard to understand. Well, then again, there are other passages of Scripture that are crystal. Passages of Scripture so clear that they practically force themselves on our faith. They demand our response and our acceptance. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Equally clear, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Or again, from our text, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Again, there are some passages of Scripture that are clear, and there are some passages of Scripture there are not. There are truths in the Bible that are open. There are others that remain closed, at least for now. But whether it is accessible or obscure, it is the duty of every Christian to receive the Bible as the Word of God. And to believe what it has to teach us about the Lord and about ourselves and to live according to what it reveals. In fact, in many ways, our approach to the Bible is the defining characteristic of our Christian faith. What is a Christian? Well, a Christian is someone who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. But Do we follow the Lord Jesus Christ that we have invented in our own imagination? Or do we follow the Christ that the scriptures reveal to us? How do we know we're following the true Christ, the biblical Savior? A Christian is somebody who upholds certain moral standards, we might say. But do we take those standards from our world or from God's Word? A Christian is someone who trusts the Lord for their future. But the future we look forward to is the glorious hope revealed in the Scriptures. You get the idea. The Bible is at the heart of all of it. It is the Bible that defines our hope. It is the Bible that shapes our faith. It is the Bible that teaches us about the only Savior that the world has ever known. So you've probably heard it, but it was actually Muslim clerics who first used the phrase, and they used it as a form of uh, of ridicule. Then the Puritans picked it up, and they owned it. And so ever since, Christians have been known as the people of the book. People whose lives and faith are guided by God's written word. Today, we are taking a break, but but we're not idle. We're looking together into God's word to consider the value of God's scripture for his people. In order to to understand it fully, we need to begin, not down in verse 16 with scripture itself, uh, but with those who oppose it. And that's what we see in in our text, beginning in verses 12 and 13. The first point, the first truth today is the opposition that we ought to expect. The opposition that we ought to expect. Read those verses with me again. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul is making a promise to you. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, if you will live your life unreservedly for the Lord Jesus Christ, you will face opposition. You will encounter resistance. You will be persecuted, maybe on a varying scale depending on where you live, in what corner of the world the persecution, uh, in, in what ways it appears where you are. But you will be persecuted, you will be maligned, you will be shouted down in the public sphere. If you give your allegiance to Jesus, you are likely to incur the silent yet very painful animosity of some of the people who are closest to you in all the world. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what we're going to encounter, and so it's what we ought to expect. We ought to expect opposition to God's word. This is an important starting point. Paul is working up to that familiar statement in verse 16, that all Scripture is God-breathed, that is, all Scripture is useful. It's profitable, he says. But the usefulness of Scripture depends an awful lot on what the challenge is. Uh, Yesterday morning, while the snow was still falling in New England, I received a text from my brother, and it was a picture of his television screen displaying uh, the forecast for where he lives. Do you have people who do this to you? They live somewhere warm, and they want to remind you of how warm it is, where they are. So yesterday in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, it was 72 degrees and sunny. It was a 0% chance of precipitation all the way until Friday. And if you lived in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, maybe it would be time to break out the sunscreen. I was glad to have a snowblower. (laughs) Different challenge, different need. In New England, in early March, you'd be better suited to have a pair of bean boots than a pair of flip-flops. It all depends on the context. Of course, God's word is an all-purpose tool for the believer. It prepares us, it equips us just as well for spiritual sunshine as it does for storms. The Bible prepares us for joy in the Holy Spirit, does it not? The Bible tells us to anticipate fellowship with God's people in church. It gets us ready for the eternal glory that we will experience in the presence of God before his throne forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. It tells us about wonderful things that we can look forward to and promises that are sure and amen in Christ Jesus. But it also tells us about some of the suffering that we'll face in this life. And so the Christian who has their Bible open will not be surprised. To encounter sickness, and loss, and heartache, and suffering. Those are all parts of the world that we live in. That is the effect of sin on our universe. So we won't be surprised by those things. Neither will we be surprised by when we encounter the personal hostility that Paul is talking about here. That's a different kind of suffering, isn't it? There's a difference between general suffering and personal persecution. There's a difference between hardship, generally speaking, and opposition or oppression. Suffering is an experience. It, it's something that we, we talk about. It could come from many sources. It might be light suffering or heavy suffering. It might be deep suffering or superficial suffering. Uh, it might be spiritual or emotional, or physical. Very often, it's all three of them wrapped up together. But suffering is the language that we use to describe our experience. What are you doing? I'm suffering. Suffering is how we talk about ourselves and our experience of the things that we struggle with. Persecution, on the other hand, is what people do to us. Understand the distinction there. Persecution describes the hostility of others, directed at Christians solely on the basis of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in some ways, that kind of personal suffering, persecution, is harder to stomach than the faceless variety of suffering we we most normally encounter. Think about the way that many people are willing to say things on the Internet about other people that they would never say in real life. The reason is the internet gives us an illusion of impersonality. It places us one screen or or one avatar removed from the people whose ideas and lives uh, and actions we disagree with. And so we convince ourselves that's not a real person. I can say things and I can oppose them in ways that I would never oppose to their face, And you can chalk it up to, uh, you know, good manners or societal norms. Whatever you want to say is going on there, but I think it reveals in practice what we already know by intuition. That personal opposition is a harder pill to swallow than impersonal suffering. Think about it. Is it easier for you to handle getting sick or to handle being abandoned? Is it more painful for you to lose your job or to lose your family? Think about all of the depth of emotion wrapped up in the line from Psalm 41 that was looking forward to Jesus Christ. It says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It takes suffering and adds a personal dimension to it. And there's something about that interpersonal suffering, suffering at the hands of other people, or suffering the loss or the opposition or the disappointment of other people. That sort of suffering touches a nerve so raw we'd rather not have it touched. That's not a surprise. That's the way that the Lord has made us. He created Adam good and saw him in the garden and said it's not good that Adam should be alone. Why? Because Adam, man, humanity, all of us, were created as relational beings. We're created to have fellowship with one another. But Paul is reminding Timothy here that because of the way sin has twisted the world that we inhabit, often for God's people, our fellowship with the Lord will become the breaking point for our fellowship with other people. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Notice how personal Paul makes it uh, in this, uh, this verse. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, he says, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is not a generalized description of the Christian struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is people that you will meet. These are individual deceivers. These are intentional impostors who love nothing more than to ridicule your faith and tell you how foolish you are for believing in some sky god who came down and died on a cross and, and told people he was resurrected three days later. You will encounter that sort of thing if you're not encountering it already. Paul is describing people that you know and relationships you will lose and influences you need to be on your guard against as you live your life in Christ. So the takeaway is that you need to be prepared, Christian. You need to be on your guard now. You need to be prepared for opposition to the gospel to show up in your life in very personal terms. It means, parents, that you need to prepare your children now for the reality that when they go off to college, they will encounter professors who are witty and winsome and attractive in the way that they approach the things of the world. Your children will encounter teachers who uh, have a wonderful way about them that they love to learn from and teachers on the other side of the coin who hate the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. It means you need to be prepared now for the fact that your Christian counsel may not be well-received when you sit down with your siblings to talk about end-of-life care for your aging parents. It means that you need to recognize that there are peer groups, and there are social clubs, and there are intellectual honor societies that will disown you just as soon as you make your faith in Jesus known. It means that you need to be prepared for your next-door neighbors and for your adult, unbelieving children to roll their eyes when you mention Christ in casual conversation. It means you need to be prepared to be passed over prom- for promotions. You need to be prepared to be threatened with, uh, with uh, career stagnation only if you will not go along with whatever unbiblical, anti-Christian social causes are being championed by your employer you need to be ready for that. It means you need to remember the word of God spoken by Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But the Bible warns us, doesn't it? It Tells us what's coming so that we can be prepared. And so we see the opposition that we ought to expect. This passage also helps us to be thankful for the teachers we need to remember. That's our second point. The teachers that we need to remember. Remember. Notice verses 14 and 15. There's a contrast here uh, between the impostors in the world and the teachers that were in Timothy's life. Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, watch out for ungodly opposition hold firm to what you have believed what you have learned and how do you do that well you remember the faith that you've been given and you remember the people who taught it to you remember your teachers paul is saying it might seem like a minor point in the overall argument to think about the people who've taught you the word but let's take a moment also to remember where we are in the new testament there are some of Paul's letters that are sent out uh, to correct problem churches, to put them back in line. First Corinthians and Galatians come to mind. Paul's writing for specific purposes to get them back on course as a church. There are other letters that Paul writes to a general audience in a general sort of way to cover the gospel in a systematic approach. Romans is the perfect example of that. Then there are others le- other letters that are personal. 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. Those are letters that are mentoring letters. They're called the pastoral epistles because they are written from Paul, the pastor, to Timothy and Titus, the assistant pastors, to prepare them for what they need to do in carrying the word of God forth and multiplying the ministry of the gospel that Paul will no longer be able to do. This is a letter where Paul is preparing Timothy to be a teacher of the word of God. And so teaching actually is not a minor issue in this letter. In fact, you'll notice down in uh, in our text in verse 17 in the the ESV, there's a footnote. Let's us know that when Paul calls Timothy a man of God, he means more than just a human person who knows the Lord. He actually means a messenger. He actually means someone who will teach others, will shepherd them in the things of God. In the Old Testament, Moses and Samuel and Elijah are called the man of God. And Paul is reminding Timothy that he's about to take on that mantle. His call to continue in the faith is not just about his own little life and salvation. It's also about carrying on the gospel to others, multiplying the fruits of the gospel as he sows the word of God in the church. That's why we read verses 10 and 11. That's uh, why Paul spent that time reminding Timothy of what he had seen in him. Reminding him how he had taught him, the example that he gave him. It's why Paul often encourages the church to pay attention to the life and faith of the leaders who labor among them. It's why Paul sometimes tells Christians that he writes to, to put into practice the faith that they saw at work in him. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, he says. Why? Because Paul knows that that is how the gospel goes forth. That is the pattern that God has ordained in his church for the gospel to progress from one generation to the next, from one teacher to a student, from the open lips of one disciple to the listening heart of another. This is what God has ordained. This is how he works in the church. In Acts chapter 8, an angel of the Lord sends Philip down to the middle of a desert road. Middle of nowhere, a road leading from Jerusalem to Gaza. And there in Acts chapter 8, Philip runs into an Ethiopian court official who had somehow gotten his hands on a copy of the prophecy of Isaiah. And Philip says to him, do you understand what you're reading? The Ethiopian says, how can I, unless someone guides me? I wonder if when you read that passage and the angel shows up, you wonder, what are you doing with Philip? Why doesn't the angel just go to the road? Why doesn't the angel show up with the Ethiopian eunuch? What's all this stuff with Philip? Cut out the middleman. That's the pattern the Lord has ordained in this church. I wonder if you read the next chapter in Acts Acts chapter 9 and you see uh, Saul of Tarsus going up into Damascus and the Lord Jesus Christ appears to him on the road just long enough to introduce himself and strike him blind and to send him into the city where he'll grope around in the darkness for three days waiting for Ananias to come and lay his hands on him so that he can receive the Holy Spirit. You're already there. Why bother with Ananias? Why bother with Philip? Why would the Lord use Paul or Timothy or Silas or James? Why bother with Rick Lentz? Why bother with Tim Andrews? Why bother with Jerry Maguire or Matthew Kerr or Andrew Davis? All the pastors who have served here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. What's the point of involving us? because that's the pattern the Lord has established. The gospel advances from heart to heart, by word of mouth, from one believer to the next. And as Timothy was beginning or continuing his teaching ministry, I think he needed to hear that. Here's this young man trying to walk in the steps of an apostle. The number of times in these two letters that Paul tells him not to be ashamed or not to shrink back or not to allow people to look down on him, I think Timothy was a man who needed encouragement. I think he felt intimidated by the superhuman demands of the job he was being called to do. How in the world could Timothy ever make any headway All he's got is this message of a crucified and resurrected Savior. How can he, in his little preaching and teaching, his little weekly lessons, his little conversations with other people, how can he ever stem the tide of the ever-encroaching philosophies and ideologies of the pagan culture all around him? What does he have to contribute? What on earth can he do that will amount to anything? And this is what the Lord uses, isn't it? The message of Jesus from person to person, from disciple to disciple. It's true, the world is twisted by sin. It's true that there are imposters and deceivers around every corner you can imagine. But the Lord sends us teachers. The Lord sends us people to sit down with us and open God's word and say, let me guide you. Just like Philip did for the Ethiopian eunuch. Just like many people have done for you. And here's the amazing part. It's the fact that when Paul says, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, there's another footnote. The amazing part is that whom is plural. Here's the apostle And he's not talking about himself. Somebody else has taught Timothy the scriptures. In fact, uh, he says that that his teaching went back very far. He says, you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures from childhood. Actually, a better translation is from infancy. The rabbis, the Jewish rabbis in the second century and the Mishnah said that at the age of five, you were ready to learn the Torah. Paul goes beyond that. He says from the very beginning, before you could squawk and speak, before you knew your alphabet, before you could read or write, somebody, Timothy, was teaching you the scriptures and taking you by the hand and leading you to faith in the Messiah that was promised to the Jewish people. Who was it? It wasn't his father. The book of Acts tells us that Timothy had a Gentile father. By all accounts, most likely an unbeliever because Timothy had never been given the sign of the covenant. He had never received the outward mark of circumcision that would be given to all children of Jewish men. But he did have a believing mother. He did have a faithful grandmother. If you turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul reminds us of them. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. You see, the Lord doesn't just use apostles and preachers. He uses grandmothers and mothers and aunts and uncles. He uses friends and neighbors and co-workers and roommates. He uses all of his people, and he puts them together so that we can share the gospel from one person to another, from one heart to the next. Parents, I wonder if you ever feel intimidated. If you ever say, how can I possibly make any headway leading my children to Jesus in this world where they would just go around and encounter some deceiver, some imposter, some impressive professor with a charismatic personality, what can I do? I wonder if any of you regular old church members wonder if you have anything to contribute to the spread of the gospel in the world or if maybe that's just something that happens on Sunday morning. This is the Lord's plan for his church. This is how he teaches the word that is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's true that he does it through sermons. He does it through Sunday school classes in the adult room where we talk about high-minded theological things. The Lord spreads his gospel through the world on solar-powered radios, beaming uh, broadcast into deep jungles where you're not even sure anybody might be listening, but he also does it in families. He shares his gospel in, in households gathered around the dinner table and prayers at the bedside. The Lord causes the gospel to go forth over cups of coffee and tea with Bibles open next to them. He teaches the gospel to the next generation in musty basement Sunday school classrooms with flannel graph pictures and big bowls of candy for when the classroom is done. He takes the gospel from one person to the next in crowded summer camp cabins, late night conversations in your dorm room with your friends and prayer when you're finished. He does it on chats on your back porch. The Lord uses teachers Like Eunice and Lois, like Paul and Timothy, like me, and like you. So God's word is useful. It prepares us for the opposition we ought to expect. It reminds us to be thankful for the teachers we need to remember. Most importantly, because it comes from the Lord himself, it is the word we need to embrace. It's our final point today, the word we need to embrace. Here's the teaching in verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. You know, in most Protestant theologies, these verses are the primary proof text of two very important uh, doctrines concerning the Bible. They demonstrate to us, on the one hand, what we call the inspiration of Scripture, and on the other hand, what we call the sufficiency of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. The the inspiration, in some ways, is a harder doctrine to handle, especially because here Paul doesn't tell us how it happens. He doesn't get into it much at all. He simply tells us that it's true. And in fact, the language that he uses... uh, isn't expressed very well in the, in the word inspiration. And when we think of inspiration, we generally think of a good idea coming into our heads. Right? An artist is inspired to make a sculpture. An author is inspired to write a poem. Humanity is inspired to achieve some greater good by watching those who've gone before us. When we think of inspiration, we typically think of some positive influence on something that already exists. Like the motivation to finally go and work out even though you've been paying your gym dues for months and never showing up. All of the raw materials are there. You just need to be inspired, that's all. You need to make something better of it. Paul's language, more accurately, is not inspiration, but expiration. The ESV gets it right. All scripture is breathed out by God. Not that he takes some raw material down here that all these people are writing, all these letters, and he says, I'll use that for something. No, 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 if you take your hand and you put it in front of your mouth when you're talking, you can feel the words that you are breathing out. Those are your words. They come from you. You bring them into creation as they leave your mouth, and they are yours completely. That's the language here. All Scripture is expirated by God. It's breathed out by Him. It's breathed out through His apostles and His prophets, but God Himself breathes His very Word in the form of the Scriptures. They exist because He has spoken them through the mouths and the letters of men. So this verse teaches us the inspiration of Scripture. It also teaches us the sufficiency of Scripture. Perhaps we can uh, can imagine Timothy in the pastoral study. Maybe uh, Maybe it's Thursday, and he's trying to get ahead, trying to get ready for his next sermon on Sunday. Maybe he's putting together a Sunday school lesson. Maybe he's getting ready... Uh, to meet with a husband and a wife who are having trouble in their marriage. Maybe Timothy, the pastor, is going to meet with a sick congregant uh, to give prayer and comfort and encouragement. Maybe it's the middle of of his lunchtime on his day off, but he's just gotten a call from the hospital, and now he's going to meet with a husband and a wife who have just suffered a miscarriage. As we catch up with Timothy making his way through ministry, like most modern people, I think we wish we could psychoanalyze him. We want to know what's going on in Timothy's head. We want to know what he's thinking. We want to know the kinds of things that he's praying. Of course, we don't know what he's thinking. We don't know what he thought about ministry. He didn't leave us any letters. He didn't leave us any books to tell us about his approach. So let's start by admitting that it's pure speculation. But I think it's a pretty safe speculation to imagine that Timothy's ministry as a pastor looked an awful lot like most other ministries, the pastors that you know. It's safe to assume that his thoughts and his prayers sounded a lot like the thoughts and the prayers of most other pastors you've encountered. And if that's true, that means that Timothy spent an awful lot of time praying the same prayer over and over again. And it goes like this Lord, What on earth am I going to say to these people? What could I possibly tell them that would be any good at all? What wisdom do I have to share? What insight could I possibly bring? Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. Please help me. Show me what to say to these people. I'd hoped that eventually that prayer would go away, but in about 11 years so far, it hasn't. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul listed all of the sufferings that he experienced for the sake of the gospel. The last one that he lists, he says, is the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. I bet Timothy carried a little bit of that too. He needed to know what to say to God's suffering, persecuted people. Before he can even ask the question, Paul gives the answer. Point them to the Scriptures. Take them to the Bible. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, dot, 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 that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work, Lord, what do I say? Take them to the Bible. Open the Scriptures with them. Sit down and say, do you understand what you're reading? Let me guide you. Let me help you to see it. Let me point you in the direction of the one who keeps watch over your souls. That's what you say to the people of God. It's not a guarantee that every pastor with a Bible will know just what to say in every situation you're going to encounter in your life but it does mean that in God's inspired word, we have all we need for faith and practice. The scriptures are sufficient, useful for teaching and reproof, for correction and training, useful in other words for doctrine and for duty, both when we need to know what to do and when we need to be told what not to do. Doctrine and duty, faith and practice, everything we need for life and godliness. And so Paul is telling Timothy, that's where you take God's people. Over and over, week after week, sermon after sermon, lesson after lesson, take God's people to the scriptures. Lead them to the Bible because the Bible is sufficient. It's all here. There's no situation left unaddressed. There is no hurt left uncomforted. There is no temptation left unchallenged. There is no sin left unexposed and covered by the grace of God and Jesus Christ for those who know him. It doesn't mean that the scriptures are exhaustive. It doesn't tell us everything that we might want to know. The Lord spoke to Daniel and said, Close the book, Daniel. Jesus says, About that day nobody knows. The scriptures aren't exhaustive, but they're sufficient. They're enough to teach you and to lead you in the way that you ought to go as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, because this word comes from the very mouth of God, it's the word that we have to embrace. I want to close with two very quick applications. The first is a corporate, a church application. And that is that, Lord willing, in a few weeks we're going to begin our study together through the book of Numbers. 36 chapters worth of names and tribes and grace in the wilderness and you know people who couldn't possibly think of a worse way to spend the next eight months of Sundays. God's word is useful to teach us to correct us, and just like he led his people through the wilderness, to lead us to himself. So the application is come and listen. Come and pay attention to God's word, and go home and pray that the Holy Spirit would take our studies even through the book of Numbers and lead us to himself, to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first application. That as a church, we need to embrace God's word, all of it. The second, dear believer, is that you need to embrace God's word in your own life. That seems like a very churchy thing to say. That seems like what you expect to hear from your pastor. Are you reading your Bible? Have you read your Bible lately? In fact, it sounds a lot like one more law that Christians have to obey in order to keep God happy. So many of us approach our Bible reading with that lingering guilt in the back of our mind. Have I read my Bible today? Have I read my Bible enough? Am I going to get through the whole thing in a year, or heaven forbid, will it take me two? Am I getting through it fast enough? Am I learning enough? And we make it into a law, but it's not law. It is quite literally the gospel. It is the word that is able to save your soul because it tells you about the Lord Jesus Christ because it teaches you about what he has done for you and what he gives to you if you have faith in him. This is a, a balm for your soul. It is a staff for your journey. It is a lamp for your feet. It is a light for your path. James chapter 1, verse 18 says that of his own will, God brought us forth, by the word of truth. It's useful and it's powerful. It never returns to him void. You may sit down for your daily reading and, and get through something like Numbers and come to the end and say, well, I don't know what happened there. I'm not sure I'm going to remember it. But God's word never returns void. It's working beneath the surface. It's putting down roots that you can't see. It's beginning to grow fruit that you won't know when it shows up that it was directly related to that that pattern of faithfulness to the Lord because His Word is good. B.B. Warfield called the inspiration of Scripture a salvific act, a saving work of God. Why? He meant that in giving us his word, the Lord revealed the way to faith and salvation. He meant that in giving us his word, the Lord revealed the way to Jesus. And so I end with the words that Augustine heard tole lege. Pick it up, read it. This is the word that comes from the eternal God, the word that we need to embrace as a church as individual believers. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your words. We thank you especially because your word teaches us of your son. We pray, Father, that as we come to your word week after week and day after day, we, we would know more of him. We pray that if there are any who don't know you and don't trust in you here, listening, that they would be drawn by your scriptures to see the one of whom they speak. We thank you for guides and teachers. We thank you that uh, you have ordained a place for each person in your church to lead others as well. Help us to do that faithfully because you have led us to yourself by your Holy Spirit and by your word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.